We are going to finish up Romans chapter 8 today. <laughs> I don't even know how many sermons it's been, but quite a few. Romans 8 has been really rich. Looks like this is the 10th message in, the, in Romans chapter 8. And um, I taught through the book of Romans two or three times before, and I've always taken bigger chunks, like from 31 to 39. But we're slowing down this time, and I'm kind of glad, because it enables me to spend more time really zeroing in on all the nuances of the passage. So we're going to get into verses 35 to 39. The subject is or the title is, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? Which is his question in verse 35. And he gives us his answer in verse 37, 38, and 39. So let's go ahead and let's read the passage to begin with. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now Lord I pray that you would give us understanding and give us the ability to really believe and walk in the truth that you are expressing here that it would give us rock solid security and assurance and that, Lord, it would enable us to go through any trial that you have foreordained that we would pass through, and that we would not forsake our faith, that we would not forsake Christ, but that we would hold on to him tightly in the midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, the big question of this passage is, can a born-again believer lose his salvation? That's the big question Paul is addressing. He says in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list seven different things that we might think would potentially separate us from Christ's love. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Then he quotes Psalm 44:22 to show that God's people have always been persecuted and they've always suffered affliction. Since the earliest days, and then he begins to tell us that he has become absolutely convinced about something. And he lists all these pairs of things that we think, well, maybe that could separate us. Death and life. Angels and principalities. Things present and things to come. Powers. Any other created thing. And he lists all of these things and he winds up by saying, I'm convinced that there's absolutely nothing in all God's creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question is, can anything separate a true child of God from God's love? No, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Hold on to your hat. <laughs> it, it does say it inadvertently. It says any other created thing. Okay, so can anything abort God's purpose of salvation toward his elect? Uh, I'm sure that you're aware this is a hotly debated subject. You've got two schools of thought within the Christian church. It's been this way for centuries and it probably will be this way until Christ comes back. You're always going to have people that look, the anvil comes down on one side and for other people it comes down on another side. And I can totally relate to that because I have been on both sides of this position in my Christian life. The first 12 years I was on one side. The last 28 years I've been on another side. Um, 
And the reason why different people look at it two different ways is because there are texts that sound like you can lose your salvation, and there are texts that sound like you can't. Right? You guys have read the Bible. You've read these same texts that I have. And that's what makes it difficult and confusing to work through this issue. So, my job as a Bible teacher is to do my very best with the, the gifts and abilities God has given me to seek to interpret Scripture as clearly as I can and then to communicate it to you as clearly as I can. It's your job to check what I say against God's Word because I am not the final answer man. Um, God's Word is, the, is our sole authority in faith and practice. So we have to judge whatever is told to us by this objective standard. And that takes time. That can take years of looking at scriptures back and forwards and coming to a conclusion, a conviction. Now, let's just get a running start in the book of Romans. Romans really, as you look at the whole chapter, is, it comes to us in two sections. Verses 1 to 17 and verses 18 to 39. In verses 1 to 17, Paul is emphasizing life in the Spirit. As you look through this, you're going to find the Holy Spirit mentioned all the way through. Almost in every verse, he's talking about what it looks like for a Christian to live in the Spirit. How he overcomes the flesh. And how he's been adopted into God's family. And he cries, Abba, Father. And over and over and over, he talks about life in the Spirit. Well, in verse 17, there's a transition into a new theme. Look at the, ver the end of verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And there's introduction into the second half of Romans 8 which is present suffering versus future glory we suffer now but we will be glorified together with Christ and as you continue reading through the rest of the chapter that's what it's about we face sufferings and trials and afflictions now but God has destined us for glory and there's also this emphasis of security that comes up especially from verse 28 on let's take a look at the security that Paul wants us to focus on. In verse 28, he says that we're, uh, God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, and then he tells us who those people are. They're those people that are called according to his purpose. And we might not understand what he means. Well, what does it mean to be called according to God's purpose? So he tells us, starting in verse 29, with the word for, let me explain to you what it means to be called according to God's purpose. It means that he foreknew you. Then he predestined that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Then he called you. Then he justified you. Then he glorified you. And as you work your way through verses 29 and 30, you find that the very same group that begins with being foreknown is the exact same group that ends up being glorified. Nobody is added and nobody is subtracted along the way. God has a very specific purpose of salvation. He foreknows, which we've determined has something like, um, many modern translations translate the word foreknow as choose. It has to do with being elected. Chose to set his love upon. And those ones he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then in order to bring them to that goal, he had to call them. And once he called them, he pronounced them righteous. That's, he justified them. And then he puts it in the past tense. He glorified them. Even though right now, we haven't been glorified yet in the final analysis, but it's so sure that he puts it as if it's already been done. And then in verse 31, he's for us. We're secure because God is for us. Verse 32, he gave the very best that he had to offer, the, his greatest treasure, his son. Won't he also give everything else we need to get to glory? That's the argument in verse 32. Verse 33, who could ever bring a charge against God's elect? Well, the answer is nobody because God's the one who justifies. God is the final court of appeal. There's no higher judge than him. Nobody can reverse his decision. Then verse 34, who's the one who condemns? Can anybody actually condemn someone who's been justified? No, because Christ has already borne that person's condemnation. He took their curse on the cross. He became a curse for them. 
And he rose from the dead to show that sins have been forgiven. He ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of God, the place of greatest power in all the universe to make sure that those persons are kept by his power. And he's interceding that they would be kept. And then that brings him to verses 35 to 39, which are like this great climax to a symphony. Think the hallelujah chorus. You've heard that? And the very ending... How there's this ear-splitting crescendo, you know, it ends in this great, that's what verse 35 to 39 are like. This ear-splitting crescendo to all Paul has been saying about the security of the believer. Though he does go through suffering in this world, he's headed for glory. Now, in verse 33 and 34, Paul's talking about people that might be able to separate us from the love of God. In verse 35, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? But he really has in mind circumstances. And you know that because of the things he brings up in verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. So we know that people can't separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ, because he tells us that in verse 33 and 34. But what about circumstances? Are there horrendous situations that we might go through that can separate us from Jesus' love? That's what he wants to answer. And that's what we're going to examine. The chapter begins with no condemnation in verse 1, and it ends with no separation in verse 39. And for a long time I stared at my Bible trying to get an outline for these verses. And I thought, there isn't any outline for this. <laughs> and it's really rare that I'm stumped by an outline because that's the first thing I look for when I look at a passage. And I finally said, there is one. But it's so simple, I just glossed right over it. Here's the outline. The question and the answer. <laughs> Verse 35 and 36 are the great question. Verse 37, 38, and 39, 39 are Paul's great answer. That's how simple it gets. So we're going to look at the question first. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul states this general question first. This broad, general question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he breaks down that broad, general question into seven specific questions underneath it. Such as, will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Will distress separate us? Will persecution separate us? And on down the issues he raises in verse 35. Now, when he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ, he's not talking about our love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for us. And you say, well, how do I know that? From verse 37. Verse 37 says, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the same love he's talking about in verse 39. That no one can separate us from the love of God. It's not our love for God, but God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's whole point here is to give us assurance of our final salvation. And he was trying to base our assurance of final salvation on our love for Christ. That would defeat his whole purpose. Because our love for Christ wavers. We're not always rock solid and steady, right? Some days your love wavers a bit. Like Peter's faith wavered when Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. We, we can be up and down, but Christ's love for us does not waver. It's unchanging. It's eternal. It's almighty. So that's what he's going to build his case for on our security. It's based on Jesus' love for his people. Also notice that he begins by talking about the love of Christ in verse 35 and in verse 39 he talks about the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the very same things. He's not talking about two separate things here. It's the same. Christ is God and so when he talks about the love of Christ that's synonymous with the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul does not begin talking about the love of Christ in verse 35. He's already been talking about it. It's the love of Christ that causes God to cause all things to work together for our good. In verse 28. 
It's the love of God that foreknew us, chose to set his affection and love upon us in verse 29. It's the love of God that predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. It was God's love that called us and justified us and is going to glorify us. It's God's love expressed that, in verse 31, he's, he is for us, not against us. It was God's love that caused him to send Jesus Christ and not spare him, but deliver him up for us all. It was God's love to justify us, in verse 33, and to send Christ to be condemned in our place, verse 34. So he's been speaking about the love of God all along. He just doesn't use that phrase, the love of God. Now he begins to use the phrase, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see how great and how sweeping the love of Christ is? Verse 29, it was given to us in Christ before the foundation of the world, foreknew us. Verse 39, nothing will ever separate us from it. So it goes from eternity past to eternity future with no breaks in the middle. So it's vast, it's sweeping. And if anyone or anything can separate us from that love, we are lost. So that's a super important question. Can anything actually do that? Now, so he gives us the general question in verse 35. And then he begins to ask specific questions that help us understand the general question. So let's look at the specific questions. Will tribulation, what he means, will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? What's tribulation? Tribulation means pressure from without. The word means a pressing, a pressure. So, when we face pressures in life, those are tribulations. Jesus said, um, in this world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Right? Or Paul said to the church in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul even said in this book, in chapter 5, verse 3, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. So, tribulations are part of normal Christianity. This isn't anything strange. <laughs> this is part of the normal Christian life. Pressures from without. All, God allows these into our lives because they are part of the process that he uses to conform us to the image of his son. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? He doesn't give an, um, he doesn't give a, a supplied answer, but verse 37 does help us to understand what the answer to all of these questions are. We'll get to that in just a minute. What about distress? Can distress separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation is pressure from without. Distress is pressure from within. Distress is our reaction to the pressure on the outside. How do you react to pressure from the outside? It might be fear. It might be anxiety. Anger. Panic. Dread. We have all these negative emotions that can surface when we feel pressured, don't we? Can our, the distress that we feel from the pressures of life, can they separate us from Christ's love? What about persecution? Persecution means to pursue someone to, in order to harm them. And it's talking about verbal or physical abuse that someone has to receive because they are a follower of Christ. Jesus talked about persecution in Matthew 5.10 in his Sermon on the Mount. He says there in Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Notice it's for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus told us to expect persecution, to expect people to say things against us, insult us. Paul said the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. Well, shall this persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Is it going to be able to? What about famine? That's his next one. Famine. Now, a lot of people read this and they say, wait a minute. Would God allow his own children to go through famine? Or starvation? Well, if it wasn't possible for one of God's children to go through a famine, I don't think it would be listed in verse 35 as one of the potential things that might separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, I do believe God will take care of and protect all of His children until His work for them on earth is done. And when His work for them is done, He's going to bring them home. But we have no guarantee that our home going is going to be painless. Right? There's no guarantee about that. We have no guarantee that Christians will be inoculated from suffering in this lifetime. God hasn't promised that. Do we really believe that all the people, the one million people that died of starvation in the Irish potato famine of 1845 to 1850, that none of those people were Christians? Well, I think that's far-fetched to believe that. What about the famines that have in the last 20-30 years in Africa, great famines and starvation that people have felt. Were none of those people believers? Probably, probably some were. So yeah, God hasn't promised to inoculate people from suffering, especially his own children. He has promised to be with us in our suffering, to never leave us or forsake us, and he's promised to give us the grace we need to glorify him and to endure the sufferings, but not to keep us from them. What about nakedness, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness? This would refer to someone being so poor that they don't have adequate clothing, or maybe even no clothing. In some parts of the world, Christians are so persecuted that they can't get a job. They're not, they won't be given a job, and they live in poverty, in rags. What about if we had not adequate clothing? Would that separate us from the love of Christ? And the last one he mentions, well no, the second to the last one is peril, means danger. What about the danger that we face because of our commitment to Christ? When I read this, I immediately thought of Jim Elliott. Are you guys familiar with him? He was a missionary to the Aachen Indians in Ecuador, which is in South America. I think it was like in the 1950s, 60, 70 years ago. He and four missionary friends of his went to the Aachen Indians to bring the gospel to them and they were speared to death by those Indians. He faced peril because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. In many parts of the world today if you were to evangelize Muslims you face peril for that because it is a capital offense within some countries um, to evangelize, to try to persuade anyone to turn from their Muslim faith. And if someone is a Muslim and they convert to Christianity, that is a capital offense. It's called apostasy. And in some rare instances, you can actually be executed for doing that. So there's peril. And then the final one he mentions is the sword. The sword. This is talking about martyrdom. And we sort of live in a, a bubble here in America in the 20th century. We've We've been separated from martyrdom here in our country, but there's other places around our world today where people die for their faith. And this has been happening for 2,000 years, since the first century. In the first 100 years, there was a great number of believers that died for their faith. They died in the Roman Colosseums. They died being fed to wild beasts. Some of them were put on torches and lit for Nero to race around crazy in his chariot. Some were sewn up in the skins of animals and then wild uh, dogs were let loose upon them. Some have been beheaded. Later on in the history of the church, many were burned at the stake. The Roman Catholic Church considered them heretics because well, for many reasons. Some of them believe that you were justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And so for that reason, they were burned at the stake. Or they 
had the audacity to print the Bible in the, the common tongue of the people and distribute it freely to them. And so they were executed by the church. This is nothing new. It's been happening for centuries. In our present day, some people are buried alive. Some people are shot. And some people are beheaded. Will that separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Now, I want you to think about this. Paul is not writing as some armchair theologian in some ivory tower looking down, separated from all of the suffering in the world. Paul went through everything that he just mentioned. He experienced it. Go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11.23 Paul writes, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers. The word danger could be translated perils. The same word he uses in Romans 8. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So there we have nakedness, exposure. There we have famine, where he says, often in hunger, often without food. Paul went through all of these things, except for one, the sword. And eventually he's going to face the sword and be beheaded. And that's how he enters into glory. So Paul's talking about things that he actually experienced and his point is they haven't separated him from the love of Christ even though he's experienced all of them. And then in verse 36 he says just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting Psalm 44:22. And in Psalm 44:22, the psalmist cries out that God would deliver the, the Israelites from the, the peril that they're under because they're being slaughtered all day long. And Paul's point is, this is not anything new. This has been happening all through the centuries. Even the Jews faced suffering and martyrdom because of their allegiance to Jehovah God. So folks, I want to bring out a point of application right now. The love of Christ does not remove Christians from suffering. And we might think, if Jesus loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer. But there are two things that we can say about this passage. Number one is Christians will suffer, verse 35. Number two, Jesus loves them, verse 35. <laughs> Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he mentions all these things that Christians face and have faced, which are sufferings. And so the love of Christ does not remove Christians from suffering. Now how do you put those two things together? If God loves these people, wouldn't he protect them from suffering? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. When my firstborn son Josiah was just a baby, I, he was young, maybe three to six months old, he got really sick. And Debbie and I took him to the hospital and the doctor thought that he might have meningitis. And in order to treat meningitis, you have to first make sure your diagnosis is correct. And the way they did that is by giving a spinal tap. And a spinal tap is where they take this hollow needle and insert it down in the base of the spine to draw fluid out. And then they test that fluid to see if the child has meningitis. Well, the doctor did the spinal tap and our son screamed bloody murder. It must have been extremely painful. And if he could talk, he would have said, Daddy, don't you love me? Why are you letting them do this to me? This hurts. Now, I did love my son. And the reason I allowed the doctors to give the spinal tap is because I loved my son. Do you see? We face sufferings 
Not because God doesn't love us, but because he does. And it's one of the ways that he's bringing us to the glorious goal of conforming us to the image of his son. Some sufferings are necessary to bring us to the great goal that all of us ultimately desire, which is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. It's for our healing, our sanctification, our wholeness. So never look at your circumstances to determine whether God loves you or not. That's the wrong place to look. Where, where should a person look if they want to know whether God loves them? You guys know the answer. It's the cross. God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration of God's love. Look to the cross. Okay, so there we have the question. Can anyone separate us from the love of Christ? Let's look at the answer, starting in verse 37. But in all these things, all what things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Paul is saying we are not defeated in our sufferings. We conquer our sufferings. We're conquerors. But even that's not what he says. He says we are more than conquerors. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. My Bible says we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The actual Greek is we are super conquerors. <laughs> Hyper conquerors. That's what it says in the Greek. And this is a word that never comes up any other place in the Bible. And Paul may have coined the term himself. He may have invented this word to describe what Christians are in suffering. They're super conquerors. Now what did he mean by a super conqueror? Well, a conqueror is someone who defeats his enemy. A super conqueror is someone who defeats his enemy and then turns that defeated enemy into his servant that serves his own best interests. So why are we super conquerors? Two reasons. First of all, because not only do sufferings not separate us from the love of Christ, but they drive us closer to Christ. So these sufferings not only don't separate us from Jesus, they actually cause us to drive closer to Him. We need the Lord in our sufferings. We, we go to Him in prayer. We cry out to Him. We, we look to Him. Just like the last song we sang today. Lord, I need you. Sufferings do that. And number two, because sufferings increase our eternal rewards. Let me show you this from 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Second Corinthians 4, 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, Imagine a blank piece of paper with a line down the middle. And you have a list of things on the left side that are contrasted with things on the right side of your page. Okay. The first thing he mentions is momentary. What does he contrast that with? You have to be looking at the verse to get this. Eternal. For momentary light affliction is producing for us any eternal. What about light? What's that contrasted with? Weight. This is light affliction. This is weight of glory. What about affliction? What is affliction contrasted with? Glory. Momentary, eternal. Light, weight. Affliction, glory. But don't miss this. Momentary light affliction is producing, causing, bringing about for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Our afflictions are producing something. And what they're producing is glory. In other words, this passage seems to be indicating that the sufferings that Christians go through in this lifetime bring about a corresponding reward in the life to come. So, those people who are martyred for their faith in Christ, there's a special reward for them, the crown of life. 
In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, it says that there is a foreordained number of people who must die for their faith. And they, they're going to have a special reward in glory. And those people that suffered greatly because of their faith in Christ, I think of tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand, 12 years in a communist prison, being beaten over and over. There's a special reward for people who have to endure that kind of suffering in this lifetime. So we are super conquerors because sufferings can't stop us. They drive us closer to Christ and secondly because they're producing, they're laying up for us eternal rewards. So, back to Romans 8. The answer to his question, can these things separate us? No, they don't separate us. We conquer them. And we're more than conquerors when these things come at us. And then he says in verse 38, for I am, what's the word? Convinced. At least that's what my Bible says. Some Bibles say persuaded. I am convinced, he says. If someone's convinced, what does that mean? Okay, how would you say the difference there? Well, to be convinced, there's no uh, going, like, no other way. Okay, okay. But persuaded is, um, he conjured it up in himself. Okay. Well, whoever translated the various versions of the Bible, one translates it convinced and one persuaded, they evidently thought that those were pretty close synonyms. But convinced means lack of doubt, doesn't it? If I'm convinced about something, I don't doubt it whether it's true anymore. I'm convinced on it. Doubt's gone. I have thrown myself wholeheartedly to this position. Now, what I find interesting is that Paul two other times in the New Testament tells us he's convinced about something. And both times, it's about this very same subject. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there he uses the word confident. Here he uses the word convinced. Or if we were to go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Again, he's convinced about something. What is it? That God is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Well, what had Paul entrusted to God? His soul. And God was, God was, uh, what does he put it here? God was in guarding the soul that Paul had entrusted him until that day. That day meaning the day of judgment, the final day. So in all three places, Paul tells us, I've come to a settled conviction about this subject. And the subject is, can anyone separate me from the love of Christ? Well, I'm convinced they can't, he says. I'm convinced of that. I don't doubt it. There's not this question mark in my mind. I'm convinced of it. I'm persuaded. I'm confident. So I think that if Paul, the apostle, came to a settled conviction about these subjects, we ought to also. If we have a different opinion than Paul, and Paul was inspired when he wrote these passages, then we must have the wrong position, not Paul. That's what I take away from it. Well, let's, let's go through the question at the end of... Um, Verse 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life. Now Paul is going to start talking about different things that we might think could separate us from the love of God. And he brings them up in pairs. Death and life. Angels and principalities. Things present and things to come. There's one that kind of stands out as being the odd man out. It's powers. It, it's not linked to anything. But usually he brings these things up in pairs for us to consider. So the first pair is death and life. Can death separate the child of God from his love? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Can death separate the child of God from the love of God? No. It cannot. It ushers him into glory. 
What about life? Life with all its temptations and troubles and difficulties and worries and pleasures and sorrows. We might think, well, the things that are in my life, they could separate me. But look at what Paul says in Romans 14, verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Whether we live, we are the Lord's. Whether we die, we are the Lord's. No. Death or life can't separate us from the love of God. Okay, well what about angels and principalities? Most scholars believe angels refer to holy angels and principalities refer to evil angels or demons, evil spirits. Angels, principalities. You say, well Brian, why would an, an a holy angel separate us from the love of Christ? That doesn't make sense. And true, it doesn't make sense because they would never do that. They always do God's bidding. But even if they tried, could they? Now that's an interesting question because think about the power that angels and evil spirits have. Angels were able to destroy two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, by bringing fire from heaven in the Old Testament. One angel, the destroying angel, went throughout Egypt and cut down and killed the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt in one night. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So they have extreme power, right? So, if a holy angel wanted to, could he destroy a child of God? Could he separate him from the love of God? And I would submit to you, even the weakest child of God, the brand new baby Christian who's just been born again cannot even be separated from the love of God by one of those strong and powerful angels. What about a, a demon that hurled deceptions and temptations and try to deceive us and take us away from Christ? Could they do it? Perhaps they could weaken our love for the Lord, but they can never weaken our Lord's love for us. Impossible. They might sift Peter like wheat. But Jesus prays for them that their faith may not fail. And that once they've been restored, they would strengthen their brothers. Angels and principalities are unable to separate us from the love of God. Okay, what about things present and things to come? Things present. Like the problems and the worries and the trials that we all face in this lifetime. Could that do it? What about a wayward child? What about a marriage that's on the rocks? and is approaching divorce, or bankruptcy, or losing a job, or the death of a family member. Can these present things separate you from the love of God? Paul says, no, can't do it. What about things to come? What about the great falling away that the Bible talks about? The persecution of the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the great judgment day when we all, all of our works are laid bare before the Lord. The passing away of heaven and earth. The earth and its works being burnt up. The separation of the sheep from the goats. Can any of those future things ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Paul says no. Can't do it. Okay, what about powers? Now this is the odd one out. In fact, the King James lists it with principalities and um, angels and principalities, but the other... Ancient Greek texts don't do that. It's separated off from them. And it can have one of two meanings. Powers could be another name for principalities. Sometimes it is in the Bible. Uh, like evil spirits are called powers. But it also can refer to supernatural signs and wonders that the enemy, in fact, uh, Satan sometimes in the scripture is said to be able to work supernatural signs and wonders. Yeah. Well, in other words, that would be like uh, uh, demons, right? Governments, like the government of a ruler. Oh, you mean earthly governments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's one I hadn't even considered. But that's one that we can consider right now. But Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, talks about the man of sin, the lawless one. And it says... 
then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearing, uh, appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So that verse, verse uh, 9 and 10 link power with these deluding supernatural signs and wonders that the enemy uses to deceive people. Can that separate someone from the love of Christ? Can Satan so deceive somebody that is God's child that he separates them from the love of Christ? Remember in Matthew 24, 24? Well, let's go there and just read that. Matthew 24, 24. Jesus said, False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He inserts those two little words that tell us. If possible, Jesus said, he would even deceive the elect. Well, if possible tells us it's not possible. Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Principalities can't and powers can't. Okay, what about height or depth? Height or depth seem to indicate spatial terms like as far away, as high as you go, or as low as you go, can anything, no matter where you are, can that separate you from the love of God? And uh, David talked about this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? He said. It's 139 verse 7. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. In other words, wherever I go, I can't escape your presence. So height, depth, that can't separate us from the love of God. And then the last thing he says here, nor any other created thing. Okay, so let's think about what a created thing is. It's anything that's not God. Anything there is that is not God is a created thing. Now, God's already told us He's not going to separate us, but can anything that He has made separate us? Now, many will agree with everything I've said up until this point. They say, I agree, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, but we can separate ourselves. We can do it. Our will can do it. Or in the language of John chapter 10, no one can pluck us out of Jesus' hand, but we can jump out. But the problem with that is it doesn't work because we are a created thing. And he says no created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you cease to be a created thing, maybe you could do it. But, in, but you can't. You can't not be a created thing. Your will is something that was created. It was given to you. So that's why I've become convinced from verse 38 and 39 especially that even I can't separate myself. Now because I'm born again, I don't want to separate myself. I don't want to do that. And God loves me enough his love is so unchanging and eternal and powerful that He will keep me even when I have difficulty, when I can't see straight, keep, even when I can't keep my eyes focused on Him because of the tears or because of the pain I'm going through. You see, it's not so much my grip on Jesus that's the important thing here, but His grip on me. My grip is it's not all that strong. His grip is almighty. Nothing can pry His fingers from me. Thank God. Or I might just be lost. I might be separated from His love. John Chrysostom was one of the early church's greatest preachers. He lived, oh, I believe it was in the 300s AD. And at one point, he was brought before the empress Eudoxia. And she said to him, I'm going to banish you. And John replied, you cannot banish me for this is my father's house. This world is my father's house. She said, but I will kill you. He said, no, you can't. 
for my life is hid with Christ and God. She said, I'll take away your treasures. No, you can't do that either, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. She said, but I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. He says, no, you can't. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> There's nothing. Well, for a few moments, she can kill him. But then she ushers him into the presence of Christ forever. So folks, when we understand Paul here, and I believe I understand what he's saying after giving thoughtful attention to this passage for many weeks, I think I understand what he's saying. That should make you bold and confident and secure and enable you to overcome the suffering that's going to come into your life. You are going to face sufferings, folks. Just because you live in a sin-cursed world, you're going to suffer. Knowing that God loves you so much that nothing can separate you from His love is going to bolster your ability to endure suffering and to conquer through it, to be a super conqueror, that those sufferings would actually serve your interests. I pray that what Paul is telling you here would produce steel in your backbone so that whatever you face, you know God's working together those things for your good. You know that He has foreknown you and foreloved you, that He's predestined you and called you and justified you, that He's going to glorify you, that He's for you, that He gave His own Son for you, and that nothing can separate you from His love. Paul wants you to have this assurance, this deep-seated assurance that God is for me, and I am for Him, and that nobody can tear me apart, and that even I can't do it. I don't want to, because <laughs> he's changed my want to. I want to live for Christ the rest of my life. Nothing can separate a, a true believer from God unless someone or something can un-God God. Unless someone or something can topple God from his throne and then go sit on God's throne, maybe then. But while God is seated on his throne, nothing can do it. So I would just ask you to let the roots of your faith sink deep down into the sovereign, almighty, unchanging love of God for His people and find your nourishment from those roots. Feed upon that, that beautiful love of Christ for His people. We're secure in Him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Let us feed upon your word here that tells us that nothing can separate us from your love. Let us never be presumptuous, never sin by claiming that we can go on and live in sin because nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, that's a tragedy and that's stupidity. But Lord, let us also not give up the beautiful truth that you've given to us in this passage. I pray that it would minister to your sheep today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.